Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This morning, it's my great pleasure to be talking to Anthony Norris Watson. Anthony isn't a geographer. In fact, he's a theatre technician and a freelance graphic uh, designer living in London. But he's on the podcast this morning because he's just released a three-part documentary about the London Underground map called Interchange. And I had the privilege, the pleasure of being able to watch this before it all released on YouTube. You can now watch all three episodes, I think, on YouTube. And We've got an opportunity to talk to Anthony, to hear about how he made it. And of course, as map geeks, we're absolutely guaranteed to get lost in the intricacies of the tube map and how it's involved. So, Anthony, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, first up, tell us a little bit about the documentary Interchange Um how you got, what prompted you to get started with this? And also, before we, anything else, how can our vis- listeners watch the documentary? So Interchange is available on YouTube. It's uh, three three episodes. Um, so uh, I started, uh, I suppose you can go into YouTube and type, type into Interchange and you should be able to find it. Um, so I I got started with all this. Uh, I started collecting tube maps. Uh, I think about six years ago now, uh, and that then evolved into creating an Instagram account where because I realised there's no one on Instagram putting pictures of tube maps up. So created a, a tube account called Tube Mapian, uh, and started doing scans of my maps and putting them up onto Instagram once a week, uh, which I still do. I, not doing every week anymore, um, but I try and keep get keep regular postings of that. And then uh, I was like, "What do I do next?" You know, I've never given stand up a go. I'll uh, how about if I write a show about uh, the tube map? So, uh, having never done it, I then wrote a one hour stand up show. Wow! About the tube map and performed it uh, with no other rehearsals or anything like that. Just went out there and did that. So that whole show was about um, my me collecting the tube map and where that fascination came for, from and how that has uh, influenced and affected my life uh, and my relationship with my wife. Uh, and then, um, and also interweaved into that is the story of the tube map and how that develops over time and, and all the intricacies of the map itself. So I did that. Uh, was pretty pleased with it, but didn't feel I was ready to revisit that just yet. So decided to learn more from other people and about other people's fascinations with the map. So went off and started to make this documentary. Uh, so I originally planned for it to be an hour long, um, but towards the end of the editing process, I, I realized it's probably better as three 20 minute chunks to make it more digestible for people. Yeah, and I think um, from my own experience, I think that was a really good call because uh, sitting in front of a screen watching a YouTube for an hour, um, it's a full-on 
commitment, whereas breaking it into three chunks really works well. And also, you've split the split the content very neatly into the three chunks. So maybe um, just tell us what are the three elements, the three sections of the documentary in terms of content? So the first one covers the history, um, which, I mean, a lot of us already know what the history is, but you, you have to lay that groundwork and for those that don't know so much. But then hopefully there's going to be some interesting things in that first episode uh, that people will learn that they didn't necessarily know about the diagram. The second then looks at its design, so all elements of its design and how that has developed and the importance of some of those design elements. And then lastly, it's, it's what, where is the future of, of the diagram and, and where do we go next with it? Oh, good, you used the word diagram there. Yes, it's a very much yeah. a diagrammatic map. Yeah, yeah. But in fact, I think it comes out in the first episode that Beck wasn't actually the first person to do a diagrammatic or schematic representation of a, an urban transport network. No, it? no. So the, the big thing I learned from this was everyone thinks it's because of Beck's uh, engineering background that he uh, was influenced by this radio diagram, circuit board diagram. But in fact, what we learned was already on car diagrams the the carriage maps uh, were diagrammatic at that point and in fact Beck's journey into work every day he would have seen this diagrammatic map with on the carriages that he traveled into work so there would have been heavy influence there for him uh, when he went to go and create his own diagram those sort of strip map things that we're used to on the tube even today yeah, very much so yeah, yeah. so Whilst I remember, um, before we get into the detail, um, who are the interviewees? How did you choose the interviewees? So there's, a, there's quite a long list. I think there's about 12 that actually feature in the three episodes. Uh, I think I interviewed in the end about 18 different people. Um, but there's, you know, there's some great people in there. So I originally intended to, it only to be collectors. Uh, to find out their fascination and their relationship with the map, which kind of then followed on from the show in a way. But as I started to delve in it more, I was going, oh, you know, I've got this great historical diagrammatic map from Doug Rose. So I spoke to Doug um, and he features heavily in the documentary because he's got a great history with a diagram and his knowledge of diagrammatic design. Um, and then I was like, oh, I've got a book from Mark Ovenden. So contacted Mark, he's in there. Um, and uh, there's Max Roberts from Chief Map Central, who's, who's so influential within uh, this world of design um, and has released books himself about Beck's maps and uh, other maps from around the world. Uh, Paul Webb is in there, who's a collector uh, and an has got uh, histor historian backgrounds. And there's also people like Jeff Marshall and Jay Foreman, who are YouTubers uh, and that cover a lot of stuff on YouTube about uh, transport and mapping itself. Right. So it's a really broad selection. And um, I think uh, it was an interesting choice that you made also that this is a documentary with a lot of people who are knowledgeable about the map, who've got opinions about the map. Um, but actually, I don't think we see a map throughout the documentary, do we? No, 
No, I, you do get sneak peeks of the map in the first, like, one minute of the first episode. Right. Um, I felt that it, it was a choice I made that the word spoke so clearly about an image we already so familiar with. And I think that's kind of wherever you are in the world, a lot of people know what the London tube map looks like. Um, mm. It's so recognisable that I didn't feel that you actually needed to keep seeing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's there within that first one minute of a montage of of examples of the map across the network um, and from around London. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't ever feature past that point. No, and the documentary doesn't lack because there are no pictures of maps in it, I have to say. So, um, and I think, as you said that, I was thinking there's a discussion in the first episode about whether the London Underground map is iconic. Um, and different people are talking about what iconic means and whether the map or the diagram, whatever you want to call it, is iconic. But it made me realise that we know this map so well that when they're talking about it, we don't actually need to see the images in front of our eyes to understand what they're talking about. No. Um, icon iconography is quite an... It was something I, I thought was more of a clear-cut answer. I thought it was going to be, yes, it's iconic. But once you start talking to people and you realise actually the map itself now isn't the map that we started with in the 30s or it's not even the map we had in the 60s or the 80s, there's elements of it that is iconographic. Um, but it's not an icon because it's it's an ever-changing design. And if it's ever-changing, it can't be iconographic. But I guess the roundel with the bar through it is iconic. Yeah, because it's one set image. The, there is variations as it's developed over the years, but... Yeah, but fundamentally, the image and the graphic has remained the same. Yeah. You know, they put text, text into the middle of the bar, but... Um, Apart from that, it is iconic. Yeah. You know? And if you see just the roundel with the bar, you would know that's a tube station yeah. on any... It doesn't matter whether there's yeah. a tube name in it or not. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, um, that was an interesting discussion. And I think it, um, it... It also... There was a discussion I seem to remember about the, um, the river. Yeah. This, uh. this is something... This was something originally featured within the show. Yeah. It was about this disappearance of the river. Uh, I think it's misdated in, in the documentaries happening in 2007. It's actually, it happened on the September 2009 diagram where the river just suddenly disappears along with the zones um, and some of the other things around the, the diagram. Um, it's, there was this massive outcry from the public when this happened um, and and Boris Johnson came out and going, this is a disgrace. Uh, <laughs> you know, it must be reinstated instantly uh, and then reappeared back on, I think, the November or December version of the diagram. Um, 
but it's it's quite interesting. There's if you look at some of the other maps from around the world of their metro systems, you get things like parks and things like that yeah. featured. And but we don't have that in London, and it doesn't suffer from it. But yet the river is such a, a central geographic item, and it's so le- low level in disturbance of what it is, but gives you enough geography of, of where you are as you travel. But in a sense, I was thinking, you know, the, sh- the way the river is represented, because it's also repre- represented in straight lines and diagonals. Mm-hmm. Um, but that representation of the river is almost iconic for London, isn't it? Yeah, well and truly, yeah. Yeah, I think you could take, you could dissolve the whole of the tube map away, and just have that that stylized version of of the Thames, and people around the world would say London. Yeah, well and truly, it's yeah where those kinks are and where it follows shapes. Yeah, it's you know it's we see it, you see it what three times a week on BBC as EastEnders starts. And it, Absolutely, and it's yeah. still you know well and truly the same shape straightened out like the rest of the map um but it is such a iconographic shape yeah within itself so in the second episode um you start to discuss what's included what shouldn't be included in the map and some of the styling things so i i found the discussion about what sh- what should be removed from the map fascinating because um, I think as you grow up with the map you don't realise how cluttered it's become. We we're at a, especially with the pocket diagram. This is what a lot of people don't realise is that there is multiple versions of the same map. So the pocket diagram is very different to the quadrille map the quadrille is the one that you see in the stations that big large poster and that is very different to the one you download on tfl's website and it's very different to the one that's on the tfl go app so there's these different versions of the diagram that exist on the pocket diagram it is at complete breaking point it's too much it's too much it's too small uh, the text is much smaller than it should ever be it's very hard to read and navigate um and yes there is a lot of useful information there but for the brain it's too much cognitive overload so it's not i don't think anyone's saying that none of this information should ever exist it's just about how it's implemented the accessibility symbols are very important but for the average user they're not so needed but yet they can exist on different versions of the diagram. So if you take to the pocket map, it shouldn't really exist on there because it's too small, needs a lot less information on there because it's going to be too overwhelming for the user. Yeah, if you went on to the TFL's website or the TFL Go app, it should completely exist there because it's it's overlayable or relatable yeah. to the user that needs it. You know, it's the same as you can go in the station and ask for a black and white version of the diagram. And it's this large unfoldable thing that's unwieldy to a lot of people to hold. I'd hate to be next to the person on the, on the tube that had one of those cause it's a one size. 
but you can go and get that one if you're colorblind. But um, I'm guessing you can only get that at a limited number of stations because most of the stations no longer have a ticket office, do they? No, but a lot of them no. have inf- information booths where the, oh, right. where the uh, okay. gatekeeper would sit. Oh, right. And he will have those they things should, They in. should have a copy, whether it's in date or, or not is a different thing. Okay. But there would be a copy there for most people to... So that takes us to what I think is an interesting part about topic that came up in, in, the, in the documentary, which was the use of colour. Um, because the use of colour has evolved over the best part of 100 years yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So the colours before Beck were at time they were ever changing. You know they swapped between lines quite constantly, um, but they did start to firm up within the twenties and thirties. Um, and some of that is from you know goes back to historical. So the, the central line would always produce their diagrams with a red line, uh, the central railway. Uh, but you know those colours evolved over ten. 30 years and there's still the colors we have now aren't the colors we had 10 years ago or 30 years ago the 60s diagram for instance the metropolitan metropolitan line was much more of a pink color than a, a dark purple. maroon right. red purple whatever uh so it's it's constantly evolved you know um it's it's interesting the two main central lines so the central line itself and the northern line stand out so well because it's red and black they overpower all the other colors even the piccadilly line is being dark blue is quite more noticeable than something like the the victoria line or the jubilee line where it's gray a light gray um so they, those it it would be interesting to see if you swapped all those colors around how much easier would it be to to recognise? I'd, I'd say that there's an argument saying that not a complete swap of colours, but some tonality change maybe to what it was before. Because if you look at the, the previous colours in the 60s and 70s of the Metropolitan Line, the Bakerloo Line, it was so much easier to differentiate the two lines because the tone tones were different of them. And it was so much easier to go, oh, that's, I can easily see that's the Bakerloo line. I can easily see that's the Metropolitan line where they start to meet. Yeah. But also you've now got the Elizabeth line, which adds another, needs another colour. And then you've got um, so many other non-underground lines that are included in versions of the tube yeah. map as well. And it, I think, you know, when you start to look at the overground, does that need to be sort of four different shades of, of orange? in a way, because there's essentially four different lines just shown as one one mode. Uh, and how useful is that to the, to the user? I mean, you could, if you look at the, there was a map in, I, I believe, the 1940s, where uh, early, ni- late 1930s, early 40s, where all the lines were shown as brown as a cost-saving wow. measure. Um, and, you know, you could, theoretically still navigate yourself around the network easily because you can see if i head in that direction on that line i would get to there and then so really you it's still usable yeah that's true and if you think about street maps um if you're looking if you're navigating using a street map all the streets are the same color yeah 
Yeah, you, and it doesn't cause any problem. No. You know, people just follow them, turn left here, turn right there. So with the interchanges, it would be the same. Um, I thought there was an interesting point that one of your interviewees made around colour influencing behaviour and choices in terms of how people navigate the tube network. Yeah, it's, I mean, like like we said, if you suddenly made the Victoria line red, you would probably start to relieve some of the central line's problems. Yeah. Um, because our, our behaviours would go to the ones that's most obvious if we were looked at. Wow, well, that's a fascinating thought, isn't it? The What most Londoners would consider the worst of the tube lines, the central line, which is always congested, unbearably hot. Yeah. <clears throat> if we just changed the colour and made it pale blue and made the Victoria line, which is a fast line from north to south, yeah, north southish. I mean, even if you just swapped, it'd be interesting to see if you swapped the central line with the Elizabeth line. Yeah. What, or with the what effect that would have? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, of course, as somebody pointed out, um, major changes to the colours of the line would involve an incredible amount of work in terms of all the signing and everything else around yeah. the stations. Yeah, you know, you'd have to update every station, uh, not every station, but a lot of stations' colour network. Uh, and then you'd go into every single carriage diagram. I mean, even now... A couple of months on, we still don't have Elizabeth Line featuring on every carriage diagram uh, or carriage no, map. Big, you know, it's a big undertaking. It would take a long time. Yeah. And it's a practical undertaking. It's not something that you can just do digitally. Someone no. has to go and change every one of those diagrams in every carriage. Yeah. And it's not just as simple as a quick sticker sometimes. So we talked about the river. Um, but just before we leave the design of the map, um, and should we have the river in? Yes, yes, hundred percent. Right. So that was that's clear cut. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Affect, I'm with you. It doesn't affect the way we travel. It's such a low level piece of information, uh, and yet effective enough to know where you are. Just gives you just about the right amount of information. Yeah, it just gives that hint of geographic referencing yeah. to the diagram. Yeah, and you know, and even when you you know Hans Schlerger uh, took on the diagram for a few years in the forties, it was still there. You know, it was it that was an interesting diagram because it was uh, there was this sort of radial blue in the middle that dispersed into white at the edge and yet the river in the middle was white and then blue at the edge. But yeah, yeah. that shape is so, like we said, is so known that it didn't matter what color it was, but yeah, that bit of information just tells you enough of where you are in London. What about the, um, payment zones? I don't know whether that is as needed as we think it is, because when you think about it, you're still going to make the journey. <laughs> Absolutely. You I've know, never used the payment zone. If, never. You know, if I, I live in South London and travel into central London and I still would need to make that journey, it's, you know, and I don't think how much it's going to cost me. I just do it. So I don't know how much those zonal fares are as useful 
to us anymore because your your reason for you're going to take a journey anyway and and there's no cheaper there's no cheaper way of going from zone six to zone one than going on the tube and paying for a six zone ticket whatever that costs um so yeah i agree i think zones could go um we'll talk a bit more about decluttering the map as we talk about the future of the map because um but i do recall in the in that second episode um I can't remember who it was. Was it Doug? Somebody was saying that there was a big effort to declutter the map at one stage, around the time, I think, that the river came off. Yeah, yeah. And within sort of five, six years, they were back to the same level of different different items on the map, but the same level of clutter that they had before they decluttered the map. That's that's right, yeah. We sort of... Uh, I was having a look today, I think, by... So 2006, when we first started seeing the accessibility symbols, they stayed on on the big declutter, but the zones were removed. And I think by sort of 2008, the zones were back on. Yeah. Uh, sorry, so that was 2009. So 2010, the zones are already back on. And then by now, you know, we've got walking distances between stations and river symbols and uh, a lot more information than we ever need as a general user and it it has just become a a thing for tfl to go look how many services do we produce and not this useful piece of information for the the general user that will just get on on the network and go i need to get from victoria to high park or wherever yeah yeah and i remember actually i think it was just coming up to the Olympics. So we're talking about that same time around 2009, 2010. Yeah. Um, TFL were desperately trying to work out ways to get people to stay above ground and to walk around central London because they were anticipating millions of visitors yeah. to London in 2012. Um, and they came up with those... Um, those columns that you see in the street, yeah. with those maps, which are sort of to give you walking directions, you know, and you look at those things and they give you a walking direction in the vicinity. Um, and they had a big effect in reducing the number of people using the underground because you could see immediately that it was actually quicker to walk than it was to go on the underground because that's always been a problem with the tube map, I think, that people have used it to navigate above ground. Yeah. So, I mean, like now we do have those those walking symbols between between certain stations if they're less, I think, around 100 metres distance, yeah. um, which is useful. But, I mean, there is that argument of going, how much cognitive load does it have on, on the yeah. general user? So let's go to what your your interviewees thought about the future of of the map because that was the third episode and you went into where do they see the map going and I thought this was the most fascinating um so are we seeing the end of printed maps unfortunately I think we are you know it's uh as Max said to me uh fascinating it's uh the printed map will never finish because I've always got a printer so I can always print my own um but in terms of official TFL printed pocket diagram 
I think we are starting to head towards the end. You know, they're producing them further apart. Uh, and also TFL's budget constraints now are, are probably uh, meaning that we might see them less and less around. You know, you can walk into a station now and not even see the latest diagram. They'll still have the ones in the racks from two, three years ago. I mean, I went when I went to uh, Paddington for opening day of Elizabeth Line. I passed four different versions of the pocket diagram. Wow! Four different editions <laughs> from Thameslink to the Elizabeth Line station entrance, and there was four different versions of it. And you go, well, that's quite interesting. That that's how many different versions are still existing on the network within one station. Um, including the really awful 2019 journey planner that they released um, was still there. Uh, but um, I, you know, there's part of me would like to get to 2033. Uh, hundred years, hundred years of the Beck style pocket diagram. Pocket diagram. That would be a lovely thing to to see before it finishes. But I, I fear it may be before then. An interesting, I mean, two thoughts come to me on that. The first is that print-on-demand, both in-station and at home, would enable people to print the map that had the information that they needed. So if you needed disability access, you ought to be able to print an A4, an A4, map would fold up to be a nice pocket map it would yeah. work perfectly as a, a pocket map um, and people could print that at home with disability with walking if they wanted to know if they were a tourist and they wanted the walking distances between stations to know when to go above ground and when below ground they could decide to add that but not the disability um, I think print on demand has got a lot to offer yeah and um, I think you know I can go on TFL's website now one that just had accessibility symbols, one that's got the, all the walking times between every single station. You can literally, it tells you every single station's distance in walking times. I can go on there and get one that's got all the, tells me where every single toilet on the network is. You know, that's, it's all there in different versions. Even one that tells you what, how much of the underground is underground and how much is out of ground. It all exists on TFL's website, uh, but I don't think it's as advertised as it could be. No. What's interesting to me, though, is when they talked about the map going digital and being able to select the content, they were thinking about the map being viewed on a digital device, probably, on a screen yeah, yeah. of some sort. Um, and the question then is whether the Beck design would last in that representation or whether you would completely redesign the graphics for a digital. What's interesting is having spent some time with the TFL Go app, because I'm, I'm, I've been, since making this, I've been really fascinated to how that's developing. It, I don't think, I think Beck's design is very effective in the way it works. Um, there has been some great changes on the TFL Go app that make it even more effective. So, for instance, that the stations appear in uh, a black typeface instead of blue, which is what we normally see on the quad royals and the pocket diagram. Um, and that makes it so much more easier to read and would be the same on the on the general printed maps. Uh, but 
Beck's map is really easily navigatable and is very effective in its design. So I don't think it needs to be lost, but I think there's just an, an element of updating some of the design language that would make it even easier for the user. On the other hand, um, if I use a navigation app to get around a city, I don't really make much use of the map. I only want the directions. Yeah. So, you know, walk from here to here, I need a map to give me walking directions. Get on this bus, get off here, get on the underground network at such and such a station, take this line, get off at such and such a place or change at such and such a place. I almost don't need a map once I go underground. I, I think there's something quite nice that just gives you that geographical representation, in, even though Beck's map isn't geographic, but it gives you some yeah. personality of where you are still. Uh, there's one version of, of an app I use on my phone that you you'd say, I need to get from here to here, but then it highlights the route on the map itself. And it just, there's something quite nice and pleasing about that to me, that you go, I can still see a visual representation within a diagram of where I'm traveling and exactly which carriage do I need to get off to be on to get off at the right exit on the other end as well, which is a nice sort of pleasing thing. But I think we'll always, you know, as humans, we're very reliant on visuals and still having that representation of, of a diagram or a map is, is something we'll always need. So as we draw to a close on this, Anthony, I'm just thinking um, Beck's map's been, I won't say copied, but it has influenced um, urban transit maps and, in fact, um, transit maps all over the world, hasn't it? Well, truly, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think for a long time we sort of looked at, you know, we'd look at the metro map of Madrid or Barcelona or New York or wherever, and we'd see the sort of common elements that were common with the Beck map. But nowadays some, of, some other cities are going in quite different directions in terms of what they're doing with their transit maps, aren't they? Yeah, so like New York has produced this fantastic dynamic map uh which as you when you zoomed all the way out it's a traditional uh, diagrammatic map very clean cut but as you start to zoom in you start to see the shape of the islands and and the parks and all that other information around it um and you know even to the extent if you extent if you zoom in enough you can actually start to see the trains traveling on the, the diagram you see the direction and things like that and the dynamic map is definitely going to be the way forward for most major cities including london you know to be able to visually see the change between daytime and nighttime service patterns which lines are open and closed at certain points um and even you know how far away is that train can i run down the stairs quick enough to hopefully yeah. get that one and there's the next one five minutes behind or and there's the things like um, we've only got one service that I know can think of that doesn't always stop at every station, and that's the um, 
the Metropolitan Line. Yeah, and I, I, you know that's got a fast, a, a very fast service, a fast service, and a and an all stop service. But in New York, for example, if I recall correctly, um, the subway system has got lots of those fast trains which only stop once or twice along their route. Yeah, and I think you know you can even say now that Thameslink is on the the diagram that you know that has got such a regular service pattern as well. You know, certain trains stop at certain stops, so you. You could go as far now that it's on the diagram to include that within a, a, a dynamic version of the diagram and how useful that would be to, to users, especially beating some of the, the traffic going through the actual tube system and how that ties in. Yeah, yeah. But you certainly couldn't do that on a paper diagram. No way. No, it would be too much cognitive overload. So let's wrap it up there. Um I think we both agreed that uh, the design is probably got legs in it and is certainly good to get us to 100 years of tube maps and possibly beyond. Um, whether we're going to transition from paper to digital, um, I think we will do personally. Yeah, I, I think, think we will. I think it's going to get there. Um, so this collection of yours, Anthony... Um, how many tube maps have you got? Oh, I think last time I counted a couple of years ago, it was about 260. It's just of London? Just of London. I don't, I, you have to put a limit on your collection. Right. Uh, so I've, I've got most of the Stingemore maps. I've got some pre-Stingemore, not many though, because they're quite expensive. And then I've pretty much all bar two editions. I've, I've got everything from 1934 through to now. Wow. And that's including every variation, the serial numbers that, that was producing it. It's just literally two that are missing serial numbers. Um, I can sort of imagine why your wife might have a view on all of this. Yeah, I, it was quite funny that when I started collecting, I kept it a secret. Uh, and it was sort of like maps would turn up and I'd scroll them away in, in the bedside drawer in an envelope. And it got to the point there was quite a few maps there and... I end up sort of like, it was like a confession moment. I don't know what must have been going through her head when I said, I've got something to tell you. Um, <laughs> and then produced this this pile of maps. Uh, and then she made a mistake of saying, oh, do you know what? That's quite cool. And if if any advice to anyone out there with your partner is, if you don't want them to do something, don't encourage them. Don't say it's cool <laughs> because it gets worse. Yeah, well, I think it's a great passion to have. Um few years ago, I thought about starting a collection and realized that it might become too obsessive. So um, I'm still collecting old maps of the area that I live in, but I've restricted it to just trying to get copies of all the original Ordnance Survey yeah. versions of the area that I live in back to the sort of mid-late 19th century, but um, I've not gone for the tube map. No, no. Anthony, it's been fantastic talking to you. How, so first of all, people can view the documentary on YouTube That's and right. we'll put the, um, the link to the YouTube, at least to the first YouTube episode in the show notes. Um, yeah. If they want to get in touch with you to talk about tube maps or they want to hire a documentary maker or a graphic designer, how should they get in contact with you? There's a few ways. Uh, so you can go to Tube Mapian. So Mapian is M-A-P-P-I-A-N. 
uh, .co.uk uh, uh, or on Instagram uh, is the username is tube underscore mapian. If you go to one of those two places, you'll find my email and, and all the other okay. ways to contact me. And we'll put both of those into the show notes so that people Fantastic. can be in touch with you. Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure talking about the tube map with you. We could have gone on and on talking about tube maps. Yeah. And in fact, um, what I'm going to do in public so that you can't wriggle is I'm going to say, would you come along to a GMOB event in London one evening with some of your tube maps and give a 15 minute talk about the tube map to people? It would be my absolute pleasure to. Right. Consider that a booking. I'll be in touch with the date. Anthony, great talking to you this morning. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOB podcast. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. Um, You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. Um, you can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GMOP event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.